Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast. This is a show where I interview biomedical and life science professionals and ask them about their career, opinions about current events or thought-provoking topics, and their taste in movies or TV. Hello, and welcome to Biofilm Podcast, a show that brings you to the forefront of biomedical research, biotech, pharma, and healthcare fields, and the professionals behind it. I'm your host, Violet Rowe. Please subscribe and spread the word. Hit the notification bell to stay up to date. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining this Biofilm podcast, episode number three. It's an honor to have you. You're one of the most prolific science communicators that I've come across. And uh, you are also a fellow scientist as well as an entrepreneur. And now you have your own Biofilm communications company, which is a writing agency. And I'm super honored to have you here today. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Pavel. Thank you. So it is such an honor to have you. And before we jump really into talking about everything that has to do with you and your career and where you are now, I guess I want to make a bit of a, a disclaimer and uh, ask you, since this podcast is called Biofilm Podcast, my, fir- my first question to you is, what is the latest movie that you have watched recently? In- yeah, so I actually am a huge film buff. I watch a lot of movies. Uh, the weirder, the better for me. Um, and so the one I want to share is called Border. It is on Hulu right now. And um, it's a movie that's set... Um, uh, somewhere, I think it's in Norway, uh, somewhere in the Netherlands, maybe it's, it's subtitled. Um, it's about this woman who she kind of looks like a Neanderthal, and she also can smell when people feel shame. Um, so she actually works as a border security person, and she's like sniffs people as they walk by, and she can tell if they're hiding something. Um, and then she encounters a man who looks like her and has some of the same characteristics. And he ends up knowing a lot more about their backstory as, as of people in their condition. Um, and it's just a really interesting film that has a lot of twists and turns. You just, uh, it was surprising. The whole thing surprised me and it's hard to surprise me in a film. So I would highly suggest Border. So uh, on the topic of this particular movie, I know you're also a horror film genre fan. So is this something that you, that was, that movie was also a horror movie? <clears throat> there, there's not a lot of horror in this movie. Um, however, some people might find it a little disturbing. Okay. Um, so, you know, if, if weird movies aren't your thing, then I would not recommend it. But if they are, then I think you would like it. Yeah. Awesome. So you have enough more time now, you feel, to watch some of those uh, weirder movies that you always wanted to watch? You know, I always make time to watch weird movies. We have a little independent theater over here in Santa Ana called The Frida that I go to sometimes. They they play old, like, David Lynch movies, which okay. I've had fun. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you planning on supporting this local movie theater when it reopens, when and if this reop- it reopens? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I guess now switching gears towards specifically focusing on you. So I know you had an early fascination with thermodynamics, and I was really hoping to find out and, um, about why this, this specific topic is something that you're fascinated with. I think what it was about thermodynamics was that it uses experimentation, uh, which all engineering does, um, to uh, describe phenomenon in the world. Really, I mean, it's, it's to describe the physics um, that's going on. And what I think is so fascinating about that is that 
I mean, you could argue that everything is predetermined because um, if we're always following the laws of physics and each one of our atoms and uh, photons and, you know, getting to those tiny little particles, each one of those is following a set of rules. So who's to say that they, you know, it's not necessarily predetermined or where this is going to go next because of uh, the rules that it follows. So I actually um, take that to the extreme and I don't believe in free will at all. I think that we are all wow. just chemicals moving around and, um, you know, science to me is sort of the proof of that. Yeah. Do you think you have more opportunities now to engage in these more esoterical and these sort of philosophical discussions or? You, or yeah. Well, being especially too in the scientific community, um, that's where you can have these higher level discussions. Um, you know, it's harder to have these discussions with people who haven't, uh, you know, haven't ever taken physics before yeah. or who are really bad at math a lot of people are um and really might not understand um how a particle knows where it's going to go next um yeah. Yeah. so yes being in this community and in these times um i think atheism is accepted more than it used to be as well mm -hmm. when i was growing up so yes we can absolutely have these kinds of conversations yeah. more to me, the, the, the beauty of science, the, the reason why I, I wanted to ask this question about thermodynamics is I, when I was in community college, I had a great opportunity to take different science classes like pure math, physics, biology, chemistry, and really see the connections and make the connections myself about all those different layers of organization, including that we all are, you know, a bunch of small subatomic particles and then trace them all the way to how our cells work, how our whole bodies work. So exactly. I, it's very fascinating to me, like this, the science allows us to really grasp in full extent to the best of our knowledge, obviously, just very gigantic concepts. Exactly. So uh, in your early career, I know you worked in, uh, in Amgen in process development unit for a few years. And this you've done, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, after you did your bachelor's. So mm -hmm. how, did, how did this experience come about and how did it influence you? Um, I think it was a really smart move for me to work before I went to grad school because I didn't know what I wanted to do next. Uh, my bachelor's degree is in chemical engineering, which is where I was taking thermodynamics. Um, but I didn't love chemical engineering at the time. When I went to school, there was no such thing as bioengineering or biomedical engineering. That was brand new. Only a few schools in the US even had bioengineering programs. So when I joined in 1999, um, it was chemical engineering was the closest thing. And then I was able to take a biomedical option. And so I did take some bio classes, but not a lot. Um, so when I joined Amgen and process development, uh, it made sense uh, with my chemical engineering background. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was there, I was actually doing a lot of cell biology. So my goal, um, and Amgen was one of the first biotech companies to use cells to create the product, mm -hmm. uh, which at the time also was, was very new. So we, um, what my group was doing was research on how to, um, what kind of media to use to make those cells produce more of the product that we were making. And could we reduce the animal products out of the media? Because, um, you know, there were, at the time, there were issues with um, mad cow disease and you didn't want to use fetal bovine serum mm -hmm. um, to create other products. 
Um, so as a safety issue, we were trying to get away from using animal products. And that was a great experience for me because I got to learn what I don't know about cell biology. And it was a roadblock for me because I didn't have that background. So, and I was really interested in it and fascinated by it. So it really helped me to decide what um, major to have in my PhD program. And I had decided on pure biology. Um, I was interested in cell biology specifically and ended up doing um, my work in molecular biology. So uh, it was pivotal. So when you transition from this uh, environment at Amgen where it's, you're results oriented and trying to optimize the product essentially into the grad school where you're just at the cutting edge and nobody's around you in terms of who knows as much as you do about a particular topic, how was that switch like for you going from that industry to academic environment? Uh, you know, it was really similar in the way that we performed experiments. Um, and that's the crux of any kind of research is the experiment. Um, mm -hmm. And what's really important is how to structure that experiment with all your controls so that you can really come to a, a good conclusion. Mm -hmm. So in that way, it was really similar. And the way it was different was, um, you know, when you're in grad school, you have one boss and there's nobody above that person. And so you're kind of, I, I always said it like you're on the ship um, and you have a captain and, and you all kind of work together, but at the end of the day, you answer to that one person. But at a company, especially a big established company like Amgen, uh, you know, there were layers upon layers of people. So, you know, you, your boss wasn't the one making all the decisions about you. Also, if you had a problem with your boss, you could go to their boss and so on and so on. Um, and we would have skip level meetings. I think the way they did it at Amgen at the time was great for me. Um, so in that way, um, the research was also, um, I don't want to say it was harder. It was more independent. That was for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I was deciding what I would do next um, and trying to learn experiments that had never been done before mm -hmm. um, and having to sort of gain mentors in lots of different places. I, I had a lot of postdoc mentors from different labs that taught me different things and different techniques. So, um, and I don't know that you always get that at a company. I haven't actually done a lot of research at a company before, but maybe mm -hmm. it's similar in, in the R&D departments. So would you say that you always had the dream when you joined Amgen, you, you had that grad, grad school in mind, or this is something that sort of developed over time? I did always want to go to grad school. Mm -hmm. um, I always wanted to get a PhD. That's partially because both of my parents have higher degrees, so I kind of felt pressured. Um, yeah. And I also, um, you know, looking back, I probably did it for not the best reasons um just to have those letters after my name not a good reason yeah but i am very glad um, because of what i learned um mm -hmm. the depth that you go into in molecular biology um is just so interesting and also the fact that i feel that i can learn i can do anything now mm -hmm. um, nothing is beyond me um because that's how it had to be when i was there yeah. So you think for, for me, when I joined the PhD, I, I like to say I joined it because I was super curious about protein structure. What was your main motivation to really go and like really dive head, head first into this environment? It, it was about cell biology. Mm -hmm. It was about knowing 
you know, yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you really can't understand yourself if you don't understand cells. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what I really wanted to learn. And that's what was also important at Amgen because you're working with cells. Yes, you're trying to produce a product, mm -hmm. but how does the cell create that product? Mm -hmm. um, and that's instrumental with, with every cell uh, in your body. Um, how is it creating those specific proteins to make that certain tissue? And why does it do that? And mm -hmm. so it was a lot of questions of why, why, why that mm -hmm. um, grad school answered. Yeah, so in your PhD, you focused on uh, host uh, virus interactions and specifically work with adenovirus. And uh, you contributed to understanding of um, adenovirus mediated disruption of P53 pathway. And uh, I was curious to know, like, how, how did that first nature paper come about? Like, what was, what was your experience uh, writing it and, and just contributing to it? Oh, let's not talk about the experience writing it, but... <laughs> um... So just to reiterate, we found um, the most important thing we found was that P53 can look activated, which means it's phosphorylated. It's not bound to any of its repressors, but it's not actually activating those genes as a transcription factor. factor. Um, so it was assumed um, before we started this work that p53 was active and all of the genes were turned on but in reality um, there was a, um, a change in the chromatin structure around those p53 target genes and the heterochromatization around those genes are what prevented p53 from actually ever binding to dna in the first place and I think beyond the virus, beyond P53, I think the most important lesson to be learned there was not to make assumptions because um, earlier the assumption was P53 is activated, oh, its genes must be turned on as well, mm -hmm. but they weren't. And I think that's something important to think about in every single experiment and every conclusion that we make. Um, I want to relate it back to what we're going through now uh, with the, you know, coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And we are assuming that creating a vaccine and having antibodies are going to prevent us from being reinfected, at least with the same strength. Right. But we don't know that for sure until we've gone through a cycle and people uh, can show that you are not being reinfected or that the virus isn't mutating super quickly and going to reinfect us with a different type where our antibodies aren't going to see it, just like the flu happens every year. Mm -hmm. So uh, we need to be careful with our conclusions um, and be sure that we're looking at the endpoint conclusion and not making allowing these assumptions to point us in the wrong direction. Yeah. Do you feel like as, as a, if, if you had a, a background of, of um, well, I guess in viruses too, to some extent, you're being asked more questions now about what happens in this pandemic or, or not so much? A little. I thought I would have a lot more questions, to be honest. I think right. people really want to want my take on, oh, is this really as scary as we should think it is? And to be honest, the answer is I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think anybody really, really knows. Um, you know, we have all these numbers, but are they correct? You know, mm -hmm. do we really know how many people were actually infected? No, mm -hmm. we don't. 
Um, do we know if we have immunity? No, we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, do we know how long it's going to take to make a, a, um, a vaccine or if it's going to work? No. So there's all of these things that we don't know, which is mm -hmm. why I think people are going, you know, way far to being very, very cautious, which is fair. Um, but also we need to uh, be careful that we're not, um, you know, ruining what we've created so far in our society. Absolutely. In your PhD, do you feel you had a make or break type of moment, which I think maybe a lot of people do? Like, what was your, what was yours, what was your moment? Um, you know, I kind of don't, I can't think of an exact moment. Mm -hmm. It really was a progression of just going through it and getting wiser through the process. Um, you know, both wiser in, in my knowledge of myself and also the subject and also just how the world works and also what I want out of life. Um, and I think really it didn't come until after I graduated and was out for a few years um, that there was really more of like these wake up moments um, where I was really figuring out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. It was more of a slow progression. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I have to say, like, I can resonate with what you're saying, because now that I've had just like, I guess, a couple of months after my PhD, now I'm starting to sort of really reflect back on it and really right. think about what did I learn throughout these, you know, few years. So it doesn't come in right away, because it's just, yeah, that's not how it works. Exactly. You have to take a, some space before you can really reflect and Really you have to get back into real society yeah. and interact with real people um, to understand who you are as a PhD. I think, yeah. um, you know, we live in this bubble when we're in grad school. Everyone around us is brilliant, um, mm -hmm. probably smarter than each of us are. At yeah. least we feel yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, when you get out into the real world and you've still got a, a while to go, um, although, however, you, you can still be stuck in that environment when you're at a company and you're in R&D and it's yeah. those same people. Um, yeah, but, I, I, I was going to say that I, di I did, since I finished it, I ended up in, uh, as you were saying, you're supposed to interact with the real world, but I'm kind of like, well, I kind of, I can't do that now. So yeah. I'm just, I'm just in this, my own bubble now and just yeah. trying to reflect on that. So that kind of was not the best timing maybe. So ever since, uh, I guess your PhD, I think you had this passion for, for science communication. Where did that really start? Did that start in your PhD or it started a little bit earlier than that? It actually did. Um, so one thing that was neat that I got to do at the Salk Institute. Uh, so we, we had a lot of donors that would donate, you know, millions of dollars. And they started this um, biology 101 program for the donors. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of the speakers at that. And so we would have donors that, you know, didn't know anything about biology and we would have to explain our research to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how it started where I would um, take this complex stuff and boil it down to what's important, what is the average person going to understand. Um, and the number one thing that to get across is the impact. How is this going to impact you? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you know, luckily we were working on something that was really interesting, which was trying to create an oncolytic adenovirus. Mm -hmm. 
um, so everyone can understand treating cancer. Um, hearing about it from a virus perspective was different, and mm -hmm. that was fun to talk about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it started. Is it is in presentations, not necessarily in writing. That came later. Okay. So would you say that? Uh, so you volunteered for that, or this is something that? Uh, okay. Okay. So what was the maybe initial inspiration? Did you have that kind of experience of talking about science to your, I mean, maybe not your family, because as you say, they had you know, degrees, but maybe to your friends as you were going through this, you know, arduous PhD journey too? Yeah, a little, not, not a ton. Um, also, you know, when you're, when you're doing your research, it's relatively slow. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to update your family all the time. You know, you yeah. kind of tell them once what you're doing and that's it. But um, yeah, I, I think that came later uh, again. Yeah, it wasn't like that. Yeah. So um, for, for, for all the viewers, I, I think it's important to also say that we've met uh, with you, Kristen, uh, a little over a year ago and uh, at, a, at a networking event. And obviously it's, it's, it, goes, it goes without saying that how much our world has changed since, since then. Mm -hmm specifically when it comes to these types of networking events, which we may or may not see in the, in the short term or even long term. So what do you think is the most profound change in, when it comes to this networking? How do you think you're going to go and explore new connections? So I've already been doing that. Um, I think there's three ways um, to keep in touch with people. Um, so one is the obvious is just calling that one person over the phone, or you could do a video chat, or even just messaging them. Mm -hmm. um, reaching out to those people that you haven't talked to in years sometimes. So that's one thing I've been doing. Another thing I've been doing um, is uh, I was invited to a, uh, like a little video chat happy hour. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm actually doing another one. So if you are in the Orange County or LA or even San Diego area, um, there's a group called Biotech Connections Los Angeles, BCLA. And we're doing a happy hour, I think tomorrow. Um, uh, and so I there's going to be a few panelists. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, we're going to break out into sessions that you can kind of talk more. And I've learned that about eight people is the max that you can have, like on a Zoom call, um, to really get to know everybody. And you need about an hour for that. So that's another way. And then the third way is reaching out to individuals that you don't know. Um, so usually I do that through LinkedIn, either it goes both ways and uh, we'll set up a phone call. You know, someone I've never met before, but you know, is in the industry and let's just get to know each other. Uh, they don't have to be particularly relevant to my business or me to theirs, but you know, learning about what's new for them um, in the industry is important to me and then keeping up those connections. So I Definitely. think there's still a lot we can do. Yeah. So, so you feel like it's, even though we are in this more solitary confined confinements, more or less, the connections are still very important to keep, to keep our, us going in the industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I mean, the sharing of information is, and that's actually, you know, kind of one of the mottos of biofluent communication is it's about, sharing information more quickly. And when you have that information exchange, um, that's just gonna accelerate uh, the industry as a whole. Uh, because what we're really doing here is we're, we're creating knowledge and we're sharing knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important to keep that up 
um, overall, even though we can't meet in person. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned biofluent communication. So this is a perfect segue for me to really drill down on your passion for writing and how it transformed you from a scientist all the way to an entrepreneur. So where did this writing passion really start for you? What do you think was a defining moment? You know, I had never thought of myself as a writer at all. Um, but the moment was when uh, it was suggested to me by somebody. Mm -hmm. um, her name's Sharon Campbell, and she um, was in marketing at Biorad at the same time I was in marketing at Biorad. Mm -hmm. And I was leaving the company, and she suggested to me that I write. Um, she thought that I was a great communicator, a science communicator, and she thought that my PhD was kind of being wasted in marketing, um, which I appreciated. And, and so she connected me with uh, one of the editors at uh, Gen Magazine, um, and that's how I got my start in writing. And I got my first assignment, uh, which was a roundup for uh, a conference. And so I got to interview people and put that all together. It was a really fun, fun experience because I got to learn and then I got to teach other people what I learned. Um, and then I got to do writing, which for me was actually pretty new to put together an entire piece. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a fun thing. I always love learning uh, a new skill. So that was definitely the turning point for me. So then you started, you started with that experience and then how did it really go all the way to where you are now? Like what were the sort of the milestones that you were hitting along the way? So um, I started as a freelance writer. Um, so I was doing the magazines and then afterwards I started getting more clients that were actually in biotech and pharmaceutical, you know, whether it be a diagnostics company or an instrumentation company. Mm -hmm. um, and so once I started to get more biotech clients, I stopped doing the uh, magazine writing. Um, and then once I got more popular and successful in, in doing the freelancing, I had to start turning away jobs, um, not only because I didn't have time, but because I didn't have the expertise for some of them. And that bothered me, knowing that there was this opportunity that needed to be filled and not being able to do it myself. So that's how the idea for Biofluent Communications came about, is because I wanted to be able to service everyone that needed a good science writer, even if I wasn't the expert in that mm -hmm. area. So when you were writing these uh, first initial, like five or 10 articles, did you have that goal in mind of really taking it all the way to where you are now, or you were just taking it as, as you would go, you know, go along with, with, the, with the jobs? I was definitely just taking it as I went along. Um, I didn't know what was next for me. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to have like a flexible career. Um, I would really like to have a baby. Um, so that's been the number one thing on my mind for the past few years. Um, it's been difficult. So I had been kind of putting off, you know, growing this business, um, but recently just decided to go for it and do everything yeah. <laughs> at once. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so this has been an idea I've had for at least a year. I think most people have the idea for their business for a long time before they actually push the button and go. Yeah, definitely. So uh, when you have started this business, now that you have a few months under your belt as a, as, as a person who runs this, this business, what was the most, the most crazy thing that you had to deal with so far that you weren't prepared to deal with before? 
You know, trusting other people is difficult. So because now I'm not doing the writing myself, I have to trust other writers to do a good job as good as I would do doing the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really difficult for me. Um, but, you know, I get writing samples, I have their resume, I see the work that they have before they turn it into the client, so I can make suggestions if I need to, um, and I can always step in and, and do writing myself if I feel like it's needed. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the most difficult part for me, is letting go. So as a, I guess as a, as a PhD trained scientist, I think the trust issue when it comes to <laughs> delegating your work to other people is probably the hardest thing there ever is. Yeah, good point. Yeah, because we're always like conditioned to be independently trained, yes. do everything ourselves and just make sure that we do it the, the right way. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So as an entrepreneur, what do you see yourself and this Biofluent Communications, where do you want to see, what do you want it to take in the next few years? I'm not 100% sure what I want out of it yet. Uh, I definitely want to to grow it. um, And I want to be able, you know, my my short-term goal is to be able to hire one full-time kind of like executive um, that will be able to kind of like take care of operations. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's that's like the short-term goal. Long-term goal, it would be great to be an international company that could service uh, biotech companies all over the world um, and be able to have enough writers to do that and streamline the process. I think Mm -hmm. going back to process development, something that I wanted to say about that was that process is so important. And it's something that I think, you know, isn't appreciated as much as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, process can make or break things, um, the companies, um, products, and, and drugs. The process that a, a drug has to be manufactured is, is a life or death situation, uh, not just for the company, but for, for humans. Um, something that I think is really exciting to watch right now in the industry is the process development happening with um, cell and gene therapies. I think there's a a lot of work to be done there and a lot of optimization um, that can lead to efficiencies to make us a lot faster um, with the products and, and, and ultimately cheaper, which is what we want as well. And then obviously safer. So, um, I'm really uh, excited to see that in the industry. So as a, as a trained writer, essentially as a self-trained writer, what is the process that you take from starting the first sentence, the first you know, word mm. in, that, in that writing piece that you have to do all the way to the finished product? Can you describe the best tips and yeah. tricks I think everyone's different. Some people love to start with an outline. I'm not one of those people. Um, I practice telling the story, even just in my head. I I think about my best friend. She is not a scientist, but she's a smart person. So um, I think about how would I explain this to her? Um, And that helps me to get what's the most important point? What's the impact that whatever I'm writing about has? What is that point I want to get across immediately to make that person be interested in what I'm talking about? Um, and so then, then I just start writing, honestly, and it kind of just comes out. Um, also, I do research. So when, when I'm doing research on the article, um, whatever piece it is, 
um, I'll have a page where I'll kind of copy and paste a lot of things, you know, whether it be from Wikipedia or from published papers or wherever I'm getting the information from, I throw it all on a page, then I can reference that back later. And then I'll put links in also to where I found that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, the, research, the research portion is really important. Um, you wanna make sure that you get a full picture and that you're writing about, um, you're writing about it all accurately. Yeah, so looking back at to where you are now in terms of your writing skills, what would maybe some of the best feedbacks and critiques that you got over the years in terms of how to improve your own writing? Um, you know, I had uh, one editor at, um, when I was still at Biorad actually, who was so good at nitpicking every little grammatical thing. Um, and since I never really was a writer before, um, that really helped me to see those mistakes that I was making over and over and not make them. So, you know, people ask me a lot of the time when you are trying, if they're trying to become a writer, what's important and getting an editor, it doesn't have to even be a professional, it would be nice. Um, but if you could just have somebody uh, who you trust, you know, just look at your work and point out those little things that you're doing incorrectly. Uh, that would, that really helps to improve your writing. Yeah. So now that we have um, had almost about a month and a half, depending how, how, my, how much we count in terms of this coronavirus pandemic, what was the most striking thing that you found when it comes to your business and when it comes to yourself? Like what were the most re re uh, revolutionary experiences that you underwent throughout this time so far? Uh, for the business, things have slowed down, which is not surprising because now um, marketing budgets are unclear. Um, do you want to spend that extra thousand dollars this month on a blog post? Maybe not because people yeah. might be getting laid off. Um, so where does your marketing budget stand next quarter? Mm -hmm. What are you actually marketing? Is, is it something different? Because all of the writing that we do at Biofluent is for marketing purposes uh, and sales purposes. So, you, you know, people, things are just so uncertain right now. People don't want to spend that money on something that seems that it could be superfluous to mm -hmm. sales, which I totally understand, um, which is fine with me. Um, you know, because this business is just getting rolling, um, I'm fine with taking a little downturn right now. I think that it'll pick up as soon as the economy opens up, especially with the new light that has been shown on the biotech industry specifically. Yeah. Um, I think there's going to be more blogs and, and marketing material pieces to come out um, really soon. So I think next year is probably going to be a huge year for us. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, but on a personal level, things really didn't change for me a lot because um, I had knee surgery um, about eight weeks ago. And because of the knee surgery, I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't oh, wow. able to drive. I was stuck at home anyway. <laughs> so it's been longer for me than for most people. Yeah. Um, I, w I did go to one networking event on my crutches over here in Irvine. Yeah. Um, and, and that was yeah. probably the last before they closed everything down. Okay. I know, it was. And I don't think anyone got coronavirus from that particular. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're here. So that's, 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 yeah. that's really good. So, so um, I still go to physical therapy for my knee. So I do get out of the house a little bit. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I've been stuck at home anyway. 
Well, that's, I guess there is recovery. As you recover, hopefully the world will recover too. So yeah, let's, exactly. let's see who recovers first. <laughs> <laughs> so at the, at the end of the podcast, I'd like to uh, give the floor to my guest and maybe they could share a little bit of their wisdom with, uh, for example, younger audience, such as early career professionals or graduate students or such. I'm curious to know maybe what were the uh, few uh, failures that you had experienced along your career as a scientist, as a writer, and that sort of have changed and uh, changed you in the person that you are now, that sort of helped you to go along the way? You know, I think um, not a failure, but um, not knowing what I wanted to do next was difficult for me because I was always a person that had a plan. I always knew what I wanted and where I was going and I was trying to get there. Um, after grad school, I was very confused with what I wanted next. Um, yeah. I was confused at what was important in my life. Um, and so getting through all of that confusion and, and you know, you're, I don't think that anyone has ever fully gotten past what you want out of your life. You're always yeah. questioning yourself and you always should be. Um, but it really helped, um, just having different jobs. So I, right out of grad school, I wanted to get as far away from the bench as I could. I became a recruiter for a few months. After that, I was in public relations. After that, I was in marketing. After that, that's when I became a freelance writer. So I've done all of these different things that were kind of almost outside of my comfort zone. And I think that really helped um, me figure out what it is I like, what's important to me. I like talking to people. I like getting to know people. I like communicating. Um, I like learning. So figuring out who you are and what you like and what kind of job fits that, who you are as a person, I think that was really important for me. So um, I wanted a job where it was important to have relationships with people. And I think that that is what I'm doing right now. So keeping, uh, keeping in that theme, like basically you're saying that if you explore what you like to do by just actually just going at it and just doing mm -hmm. different things will really help you to discover who you are. Yes, yeah, I, and I think people are really afraid, especially right out of grad school, that they're going to pick the wrong thing to do. Um, and I've, I always tell people, just go for it. You know, you can always quit. And, and that's, grad school doesn't teach you that you can quit. You cannot yeah, quit when you're in grad school. You have so to stay true. in it no matter how hard, how hard it gets, no matter how abused you are even sometimes. Yeah. So, um, no, you can always quit. Yeah. And, and people need to remember that you are not stuck. Uh, you can leave and you can find something else that you like better. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for your, for your time to talk with us today. It's, a really, it's an honor to have you. I hope your knee will, will get much better. Oh, and you. we'll see each other in the next networking event, hopefully in the next few months. Yes, I hope so. If not, we'll do this again. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much, Kristen, for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay.